0: Creators podcast. I'm here today with Nick Sampson. Nick Sampson's based out of Detroit, Michigan, and he's best known for working with like Asking Alexandria, Born of Osiris, We Came as Romans, Of Mice and Men, The Word Alive, and Fear and Faith. And he also is a founding member of the band I Am Abomination. You can hear in this episode that Nick really knows what he's talking about and has a deep, deep knowledge of the work that goes into making the type of records he does. He gets into some technical specifics that even the oldest, biggest nerds I don't hear get right into some of the techniques, and I think he talks about a lot of cool stuff that a lot of bands really miss. So this episode's a really good one, and I think it's uh, one that everybody will benefit from. Check it out. One second before we get started with this interview noise careers is able to do these cool podcasts because we're a service and we're trying to get the word out about our service to people so if you enjoy this podcast it's really really important that you share it to people so more people can get to know what we're doing trying to connect musicians with producers to make better music and make better records for you all to listen to. So please, please, please help us out. If you like this and like what we're doing, share it, tweet it, Facebook it, Instagram it, tumble it, whatever you like to do, do that. As well, we're going to start doing a really cool thing. If there's a great quote from these podcasts that you really enjoy, put it on a graphic, tweet it. Facebook it, take a picture of it, and send it to us at Noise Creators on every single one of the social networks. And what we're going to do is we're going to share the best ones. And if you're one of the best ones... We're going to send you a list of prizes we have. We have a bunch of cool, rare things from bands that aren't as much of a use to us. We have a couple of extras of rare pressings of vinyl, all sorts of cool stuff. You can choose from a list, and we'll send that out to you for free if you share a really cool quote that we like and we use. Thanks so much for helping out, and please, please, please help us spread the word on our service. Thanks. So what's your chain for recording your voice today? I have an RE20 running through
1: an Avalon... 737, using a little bit of the EQ and compression on that unit. Nice. We, we, we won't get RE20 20, uh, 20 a lot. Is that one you like for vocals a lot? I've actually used this mic about two, three times, twice for uh, kick drums, actually. Yeah, we did, that's the we, best. Yeah, we did uh, two kick drums on the Miss May I album, and I had them both inside, like, actually really far in. He had those shock mounts, internal shock mounts in his kick. Mm-hmm. You know, strapped them in there, and I had to do some mid-carving, but... They came out great. Nice. So tell me about your background in music. Guitar player since I was probably 12 years old. I started a band called I Am Abomination when I was 16. We had started touring and playing shows and all that. And it was time to record. So I was a part of this forum called the ultimate metal forum
0: oh yeah I, that, that, that's been a reoccurring uh thing on here is a lot of people that was the uh forum that really uh gave them a lot of good knowledge oh
1: yeah yeah so um, the andy sneep portion yeah it was the andy sneep sub forum i see a lot of guys that are killing it today who used to be in there mm-hmm. and uh it's it's really cool to see like how they could grow from from that into what they are now and i had i had made friends with joey and oh nice we, we uh Wound up tracking our first EP with him. Became better friends. And then I, uh, we started, you know, uh, I started doing engineering work for him. Two years later, I was, you know, working on some huge records. So it was a pretty crazy experience. But yeah, guitar player for the longest time. Loved music. Nice. And so you have your own studio. Can you tell us about that? Actually, I work out of a studio called 37 Studios. Mm-hmm. And that's in Rochester Hills, Michigan. That's where we are now. Great place. A lot of other engineers work out of here too. Uh, Sturgis does work from here. Uh, I do work from here. Matt Dalton is the owner along with Kevin Sharp. We have Nick Scott in here right now actually tracking a band in the live room as we
0: speak. So it's nice. a pretty busy place. Sounds like it. Yeah, it's fun. So you mentioned you play guitar. Do you play any other instruments? Not very well. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I, I, uh, I'm I mainly a guitar player. I if, I if you put me in front of a DAW with a MIDI controller, I'll you know, be able to write anything as far as actually performing like a piano or, you know, drums. I'm really bad at drums, (laughs) but, uh, I mean, I
0: can, I can diddle around on the piano here and there, but guitar is the main instrument nice so we have been talking about this like spectrum for producers of like you know you have like your steve albini's who just record the takes get good sounds but don't really get involved in like the songwriting then you have like a john feldman who will totally rewrite your songs uh when you come in where do you see yourself on that scale i mean i think that's what separates the men from the
1: boys in this industry Mm. um now with technology increasing like i mean the drum sounds that you can get just out of a sample pack are like so insane if you were to flashback 10 years ago and try to get those kind of sounds it i mean they they just weren't there you know mm-hmm. it was it was so much more work to get to that point but um so like all this technology is available to everybody now so i think it's becoming less of a spectral thing with releasing a record and more of a content thing hmm. um, i believe that the song is the most important part of the entire process i mean obviously mixing and uh, getting good takes and everything is like equally as important, but if that those takes in that mix aren't sitting on a really good song, then I think you're going to have an issue as far as the success of that material.
0: I like that, actually. It's, 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 I, I don't see myself the exact same way, but I think that, that is a very, very good point. So when you work on records, what do you see in the usual case scenario that you bring to records most often? Like What I think my value
1: is mostly is in um, having... A, a really good song and knowing knowledge of music and knowing harmonies and knowing when to say certain words and choruses, um, trigger words. Some people understand certain words.
0: Yeah. You, why do you, why others. do you go deeper on that trigger words? What, what do you mean by that? When you have
1: like a long held out note in a chorus, for example, and if you go to the one extreme and make that word like seven syllables long and, some weird like consonants in there people aren't going to connect with that as much as it's a word that they hear every day Mm. you know so a lot of what I try to do is try to think from the listener's perspective and try to make that chorus connect with them on a personal level because at the end of the day that's what we're here to do and especially with the sibilance and everything like I don't know exactly how to explain it but like it's just this feeling you get when you hear a word sung in a chorus that you know it could be a different word and it could Hit harder and use a different vowel sound. And that's especially important with clean singing for me.
0: Huh, I like that. So, what's a common mistake you see bands do before getting to the studio? I would say the lack of pre pro. Mm. That is very important because when I get
1: pre pro in, I'm assuming that this is what the band has visioned out for their record. I like to see the entire records pre proed out. I know that's rare with touring schedules and like people having to write on tour and all that but um, I've been pretty fortunate to have a lot of the projects that come in here come with some pretty detailed pre-pro so that really helps me get a a view of what they want and how they want this record to sound and also their shortcomings and where things could improve and where I come in and it just kind of helps me get a game plan out before the entire uh, record actually starts. So I think that's, that's really important. And if, if that isn't there, that definitely is an issue because I mean, it has to happen either way. Like I, you can't just record a song without hearing the idea first, especially in this, you know, level of things when you're you're coming out with records that are going to be heard by a lot of people, you want to make sure that's top notch quality and whatever decisions you make along the road are the best ones. And you need a control for that to happen. And
0: that is the pre-pro. Nice. I like that. Uh, so what's a smart thing you see bands do during the recording process? I get a
1: lot of, I mean, now with DAW technology and everyone, you know, everyone's using a DAW, it's a lot easier to get knowledge on how to use that kind of stuff. I see people that are coming in and they're really prepared and they're really attentive to what they're actually doing. Pick attack is a big thing. Mm. Uh, when I get bands who have producers or people who in-depth with audio engineering as artists as well, For example, Fit for a King, I just got done with them. Uh, Bob, the guitar player, he is a producer himself, and uh, he'll stop himself if he's not picking it right, you know? Mm. And I think that's really important. That's cool that uh, bands are getting more in-depth with that because, I mean, that's obviously my job to make sure that all the pick attack is right and all the sustain is right and Mm. the, the palm mute is the right spot, you know? But when people can do that themselves, I think that's a very valuable asset. And I, I appreciate that when they come in.
0: Nice. Yeah. And I think that that is one of the things like that's a men from the boys thing too, is that so many people don't realize that there is subtlety and all that stuff. Absolutely. What's a, a smart or a common flaw you see in bands not preparing their vocals? Well, the vocals, that's, that's a process I like to be
1: involved in pretty in depthly. but I see people who don't write lyrics a lot of the time and they'll have melody ideas, but I mean, I flip-flop on this all the time, whether it's better to, you know, write the melody first or write the lyrics first. But hmm. at the end of the day, the lyrics are what people are hearing mostly. You know, that's that's the language that they speak. So that is, I think, more important to write up front. And then melodies should come after that. When people come without lyrics, it's definitely a hard time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because, I mean, I can help write lyrics, but I'd rather, you know, I'd rather leave it up to the, the vocalist to say what they want to say. And, you know, and if I think that that could be said better in a different way or using different words, uh, that's when I
0: come in and help do that. Nice. So, what happens when you and a band disagree about something? It's actually pretty common. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, yeah, because people,
1: I, it's called pre-proitis people get attached to their demos and I mean it, it's just something like when they're listening to it when they first finish it and they're like oh wow I really like this part this is like awesome and then it turns out that that part you know might not work with the entire song or something along the lines it, it, it if any case it had to change they really get defensive about that kind of thing and I understand that because I'm the same way you know when I write music for my own projects. I'll struggle with myself or other people, and say, "Oh no, this part has to be this way." Or, I just love this; like it gave me this feeling when it happened. And it's—I know—it's kind of hard to like let go of that and and sacrifice for the entire big picture. Sometimes it is a necessary sacrifice. And uh, I try to—I know I—I I don't like tension in the studio. I think everyone should be chill. Arguments—I mean, arguments are had, but civilly is the best way to take care of that. Being realistic about it. But uh, yeah, I mean, I it, whenever there's an argument in the studio, we do both things. We do it both ways, and mm-hmm. then we have the entire band in here, and then we come to a consensus on which way should be the right way to go about it. And I, I like to make it a group effort like that. I mean, if it's something that I'm really feeling passionately about, like if it's some kind of discrepancy within the music that they want to keep, that I I mean, it goes against my knowledge of theory or, like, any, or my ears. Like, I, I'll, I'll be stern about it, but um, most of the time it's, it's not anything like that. Most of the time it'd have to be, like, a, you know, a length of something, a, st- a speed of a riff, mm. a snare on two, snare on four, uh, on three, arguments like that, whether it's should slow down or speed up, um, structure issues like that. We usually get through it pretty well. We don't, we don't let people leave here that uh, are unsatisfied
0: Nice. Um, You talked about calming the tension. Can you tell me something you do to calm the tension when it gets uh, out of hand? Uh, The first thing you have to do is become friends with everybody. You have to feel them out.
1: A little bit of psychology involved, I guess. Um, I wouldn't go too in-depth with that, but I know certain producers are very, very tuned into that. And Mm -hmm. some even have degrees behind
0: them. Yes. (laughs) I I think that's one of the funniest things that people don't realize is how many... uh, dropout psych students or uh graduated psych students that go ah oh, record production i think that i could do some good manipulation with this yeah exactly yeah it's i
1: mean it's it's an it's a mind game eventually if you make everybody your friend you know when they have that common respect towards you so you can kind of be a mediator there and as long as they have that respect for you they're going to think twice before they do anything irrational or like say anything crazy yeah one, most of the arguments are between band members about things and the way they should happen. And uh, diffusing that is just part of the way I, you know, you got to get that handled. You got to squash it because you got guitars to track or vocals to track and you're on a timeline. So we got to make sure, It. I mean, the argument should be had because opinions do matter within the group. As long as it gets done in a timely manner, I don't mind letting people hash out because, you know, satisfaction comes from everyone's ideas being put in place and
0: at least fleshed out and given a chance. So I try to make that happen. I like that. I think that's going to be one of the quotes the uh, kids blow up from this podcast. <laughs> so can you tell me a good lesson you've learned about creativity or the creative process recently? Yeah, I think that being creative comes with, I don't personally,
1: I don't listen to much music. I mean, I, I obviously try to you know stay in tune with what's hip. And what's going on with uh, certain trends, stuff like that, so I can make sure that you know my projects are on the shelf right next to the other ones and respected the same way as the other ones. But as far as personal uh, input, I try not to listen to much music because I've noticed a lot of people, um, if they're in, if they're listening actively to the same type of music that they're trying to produce, mm-hmm. you you will get a melody stuck in your head, and you will that will come out when you're trying to write something, and that's never good originality. I think comes from, you know, the brain and not what's around you. So you have to, I try to separate myself from that as much as I can. So being creative is a, uh, it's a whole new ball game when you're not you know, influenced by other music. It's a, uh, it's, you got to reach a little further and uh, make it happen.
0: Yeah. I think that there's a thing too, that people get confused with this because like, it is a thing that like, you know, uh, I've been doing interviews with the best producers of the game and everybody says this, like, I'm not listening to a lot of, A lot of music, but then you can't also tell that to a seventeen-year-old kid who's got to learn a lot by listening to music early on. Like you have to get to that level. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah,
1: I wouldn't give advice to people to not, you know, listen to the music that they're trying to produce. Totally. As a a producer who's every day coming in writing melodies for people, Mm -hmm. I try to, you know, keep it my brain outside of the world that's going on musically at that time. To you know, to so the ideas I have come from my. My brain instead of coming from
0: you know the radio or what i listened to earlier that's subconsciously stuck in my head i i like that okay so we have this thing where we want to talk about some modern production tools we try to keep this kind of rapid fire four sentences or less how do you feel about amp simulators i embrace them i'm one of the guys that's on that side i realize
1: that a microphone in front of the guitar cab cannot be replicated 100 percent. it has a sound air moving Mm. it's I think it's a linearity thing. I think it's an an unpredictability that happens within the analog realm that that makes it special. But um, I embrace anything digital. Uh, How about sample drums? I'm a fan of tracking live drums and getting that that vibe because, Mm -hmm. once again, I don't think anything can replace that. There's, There's differences in the way people hit cymbals when they're playing a kit rather than triggering a symbol sample every time. symbols mostly. Um, that's, that's the hardest thing to make sound real if you're programming. Totally. But, I mean, if you're thinking like a drummer and thinking how he's grooving and how hard he's going to be hitting certain things and where the downbeat is, you can get really close. You can come out with a satisfactory result. But I do prefer to actually lay the drum tracks down. And enhancing with samples is always there. I mean, I've done a few records without any samples and they're good for what they are but like is when you're talking competing with all the other records that are coming out and you want you know that smashing drum sound to compete with the band that came out before you or the band that's next to you on the chart that week you definitely want to be competing and i think the general consensus is that everyone is blending samples to a certain extent so i believe in that for sure nice how about pitch correction yes i've never met a singer that can really satisfy the, the pitch to, at least for my mind I, I prefer I don't like tuning very hard I, I believe that there's a relationship between frequencies because I'm a f- big fan of harmonies when you have that third harmony and it's against the main that is the root and it's not gelling you know there is, there is a scientific relationship between how many times that harmony note is vibrating per second and how many times that root note is vibrating per second and when you get it right it's just killer you know Also, you don't want them to sound robotic and you don't want it, you know, I don't use pitch correction as a crutch. I use it as a tool to make it sound better. As long as you keep that in mind, I think you'll be all right. And don't, if you're using auto-tune, don't put the retune speed over 30. That's what I, I, I,
0: I, you you know, it's, it's funny. That's in my guide for the interns as well. So for the kids, for the kids out there, there you go. Um, do you master your own records? Yes, I do. And can you tell us a little bit about the insight into that?
1: I'm in. I'm in the box completely for the most part. On the way in, I'm obviously hitting preamps, and I'll, I'll at the studio we have a, a multitude of like EQs and compressors that I'll use to get the vibe coming in. But as far as mixing and mastering, I'm uh, completely in the box. And the way I look at mastering a record is that I'll mix the entire thing, and then I'll have like a f- a faux master, as everyone has, you know just you know, to level please the A&R and the, the band, make sure they're so they don't think their record's going to come out super quiet I'll get all the mixes done with the Foe Master and then I'll print them all out and bring them into a new session, put all my mixes in there, check them I'll set markers at the each chorus and I'll cycle through them and just pay attention to the frequency balance between everything and if one of them seems too hot or too bassy or something I'll I'll tackle that right on the track uh, with an EQ. I'm a big fan of spectrum analyzers, so I'll, I'll use my eyes you know, to see what's going on as well, but uh, ultimately it's your ears that would need to do the work there. So as long as you're paying attention to the frequency balance of track A compared to track B, you, you want them to be similar, not exactly the same. I wouldn't go as far as to like match them or anything, but each song has its own vibe. Each song's different notes are playing, different frequencies are resonating. You have to make sure there's no buildups in those. The low end is a big thing. I always check on multiple systems, the low end, and that, that has to be right because that, uh, that can really kill a mix in a master for sure. But um, as far as that, once I get all that dialed in, I'm into my master chain compressor, try a few different compressors, and whatever one's vibing the most, I'll go with that. Then I'll hit it with some multi-band. Um, scan the entire album mm-hmm. through a multi-band compressor. Look at the peaks. Um, then I'll take those peaks and enter them as my thresholds, and then pull them, pull the thresholds all the way down together. And I'll see a curve, and I'm looking, looking for a certain curve every time. And as soon as I get that, then I'll, uh, you know, each each band will be tamed. Attack and release basis set on preference. Um, and this, when I go from there. I might do another EQ to see what's going on, just to look at the analyzer, see what's going on. And then top boost if it needs it, low boost if it needs it, some mid-work mid, mid work if it needs it. Always use high-end EQs with linear phase modes if you can, because that's really important when it comes to that. It's the final step, you know, it's the glue, so you need to make it right. And then uh, as far as loudness, I'm just in a, a limiter, you know, like a isotope ozone and i'll uh, i try not to make them i mean this loudness war is kind of dwelling down which is cool youtube is normalizing all the tracks now yeah spotify spotify and apple
0: music too really oh yeah really? yeah, yeah. yeah. They, they changed their algorithm last year it's crazy yeah i'd, I'd like to know more about that I'd, it, I'd like I, to get I, it, it's it's you know what's the, the the best thing to do just literally take your spotify load it into your uh, analyzer it's insane to watch now it's really? even changed in the last three months. I've noticed I, I do it every time I'm like doing studio cleaning day. I throw it in and it blows my mind. What I see.
1: That's crazy. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to do that. I'd, that's something I'm going to have to brush up on see what's going on with what they're doing. I know uh, I've, I've heard rumors that 15K and above is cut out on YouTube. And I can hear it. Well,
0: I think that that's when uh, the stream is not uh, totally good. I don't think it's algorithmically. I think that that's um, when you don't have the high quality stream that that's really there because they just do such shit audio. But what's interesting is I don't think they're doing that on the load in because on my Apple TV, the stream is better than when I just do on my desktop. Oh, cool. Yeah, that I didn't even think of it that way. Yeah, I think it's a, a post load in type of thing. Okay, Cool.
1: Yeah, but as far as that goes, um loudness I try to shoot for an RMS mm-hmm. anywhere between uh negative ten and negative I mean negative nine is getting up there. That's mm-hmm. pretty crazy. Um I'm I'm more comfortable at negative eleven or negative ten nowadays. Um especially because when you uh, people like bassy records now and they always have, but when you get a lot of that bass coming in, that's gonna really start to clip. Uh especially if if you listen to some records um with big tom hits and breaks. Mm-hmm. You'll hear you'll hear some little clipping once in a while. It's just the the nature of the frequency. It's the boss, you know. It's gonna hit that threshold and just destroy. So you got to make sure you're uh, you're on that. But
0: other than that, I just uh, I, that's how I treat mastering. Nice. Usual case scenario, obviously everything's. To, but uh, how long do you usually take to track a song, and then how long does it usually take to mix a song?
1: I like to have three days for for tracking a song. Um, when it comes to drums, we have a drum day. Um,
0: I've been doing drums last lately mm-hmm. uh, because that's, that's a reoccurring thing on here as well. A lot of people yeah, are getting into that. I myself have been getting into it too. Generally the is
1: you know, groove to the drum track, but nowadays, like I was saying earlier, everybody, you know, has a DAW. Everyone can program drums. Everyone can make their music to a certain extent before they even come in. And when, when you're talking about changing things throughout the process, which happens all the time, You don't want to have a a concrete drum take that's there and, you know, you'd have to reset everything up and, like, phase the mics in the same spot in the room and get everything set exactly back up to, like, recut drums. I like to to track to program drums Mm -hmm. so you get the idea there. And even, like, the day before a drum day, you could go in and, like, change stuff. Then you have a guide and that tells you, you know, exactly what you should be playing or close to what you should be playing. Then at that point, the drummer has professionally recorded... You know tracks to listen to while he's jamming. So, I've had feedback from a lot of drummers that like that process. You know because they, they got the bass that's tracked, they got all the the background stuff, they got vocals even, so they're just jamming like they would be live.
0: You know. Yeah, and then and then they don't have to complain about how the scratch tracks messing them up. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so then, how long about does it take for you for you to mix a song? I
1: can't. I can get one out in a day. Usually, I like when I'm doing an album, I'll do a test not a test mix but like the general mix in the day and then i'll you know let's sit on it for a minute before i send it to the band and uh compare it to some other things and once i feel comfortable with it i'll send it over if they approve that and they like the way that sounds then i'll kind of like have a, a rough template set up where i'll i'll take this the drum sounds that i have and i'll export those tracks and keybase and re-import them to the new session And just start dragging tracks and vibing there. I I don't like to, you know, just kind of depend on the preset for the entire thing. Uh, Every song has a different vibe, different frequencies, different notes. So you got to move your EQs around if things are getting muddy in certain spots. One piece of advice I would give to the younger guys, do not rely on your presets. Mm -hmm. They will get you so far. It might work. It might work great if you have a song that's in the same key, same kind of uh, guitar playing, you know, but... Always use your ears when it comes to that, and uh even strip down some of the stuff on your presets when you when you go to load other songs in, mm-hmm. because some of those moves you made were for certain things, you know, if, if you have a, a part where a guitar is really digging in and you want to get that, that grind out, so you get some of that 7K, you know, boost that a little bit, and then some of that, like, one and a half for that grind, but then you have a song... That's a chorus, It has a chorus, and it's super killer, and you want to tuck back some of those guitars. Well, now you have this big 1.5k mm. going on, getting in the way of your vocal. And then getting in the way of the sibilance, too. So especially because now a lot of bands are doing clean singing and screaming, you got to make sure that the guitars are vibing with everything at all times. So definitely do not think that you have one song mixed and you have the
0: entire record mixed. That it's not... <laughs> The right way to go about it. Nice. Yeah. Uh, what's a good lesson you've learned from another producer?
1: I think uh, Joey mm-hmm. taught me a lot about like engineering and coaxing people to, to do better. Mm. He taught me a lot about uh, how to keep the you know the mood calm during tracking. How to how to convey to people what you want without you know confusing them. Like instead of you know saying well that sounds like crap, you could say. Well, I think you need to you need to pick this a little harder, or you need to you know, move your hand. Like being knowing what you want and how to accomplish what you want when you're engineering somebody is very important because then you can analyze the situation. Okay, guitar player is definitely not getting all the strings on that hit. Oh wait, let me look at the action on the guitar. Oh, the the high string is like a quarter inch above the other strings. No wonder he's not hitting the other two. Let's fix this real quick. You know, things like that. Um, being proactive about engineering. And knowing what you want is very important. And that's that's a lesson that he had instilled in me from the beginning. So
0: I think that was a good thing. Nice. That's really cool. Tell me about one of the best moments you've had in the studio.
1: I mean, there's tons of them. But uh, off the of hand, I think looking back now, in the early days when I started engineering for Sturgis, I would have my rig set up in his living room. And then he would be with the band in his studio but i would be editing at, at one time we had we came as romans uh, is this mind you this is in 2009 so none of these bands were huge yet we had we came as romans staying with of mice and men and i was editing the asking alexandria record at the same time hmm. and all of those records went on to sell hundreds of thousands of copies and i think it's really cool to look back and like see all the hard work that we put in because we we went hard for like Two or three weeks trying to cram all this in for release dates, so that was that was a cool time. It was very stressful, but it's humbling now to look at how that work turned into something so great.
0: Huh? That's really awesome, and also sounds crazy. Yeah, yeah. So we're gonna talk about your taste in music a little bit. Um, okay. What's a perfect record somebody else made, and what about it makes it perfect?
1: I think "On Letting Go" by Circus Survive mm. is the best record ever. Nice. <laughs> I mean, I I try not to have the producer mind or the producer ear when I listen to it I try to just enjoy it for the music because when I was you know 16 when it came out I was like totally blown away the melodies were amazing Mm -hmm. the guitar the what they were doing was amazing to me and mind you like I come from an extreme metal background Mm -hmm. so like I was jamming necrophagist before I was listening to Circus Survive but when that when that record hit me I was like wow this is crazy it the sound of everything it's just intense. I just, I love
0: it. I love everything about that record. The songs are great. Mix is great. Bumps. Love it. Nice. Um. So let's talk about five of your favorite records and your musical growth and like what they did for your growth uh, in music. If we go back
1: to the beginning, there would be uh, some of the early Van Halen records. That's where mm. I, I mean, I was blown away by what he was doing with the guitar and I wanted to do that. So I, you know, I would sit, and I would listen to, like, you know, Panama, uh, mm-hmm. all the classics.
0: Yeah, it's and, some and of my Van favorite Hale stuff, records. too.
1: Yeah, it's, it's I mean, it's happy metal. Mm. It's, it's something that I tried to contribute to my band, you know. Uh, we're a, a pretty heavy band, t- pretty technical band with no uh, screaming or anything. So a lot of people call us, you know, pop metal, whatever. So I kind of tried to get that vibe from Van Halen, like what he did with his song structuring, what he would do with his guitar riffs. To make it happen like how to make a major scale sound gnarly like he's the king of that so i that rec like early van halen records are always good for me um necrophagious epitaph that that was the first record that i i couldn't figure out what was going on because all the the guitar riffs are just so insane and in that and the drums even are just insane i'd love to get some more production details on that i have to dig around the internet somewhere to find it but uh, that record sounds awesome to me. And that, that was a record that pushed me to do more with, you know, the guitar and learn more about theory because Muhammad is obviously a theory genius. And he, the fact that he writes everything in, uh, on the computer, like with PowerTab, I think that's what he used back then. But Guitar Pro is out now, Tabit. A lot of people are using that. He plans everything out there first and has ultimate control because... He he uses his brain to convey which music he wants without having the crutch of being able to perform it. And then he'll go in and learn it and just slay live, you know. That record really pushed me to write crazier stuff and to dive deeper into theory to find out how to convey certain emotions. Because when you listen to that record, you're like, Wow, this is crazy death metal, crazy tech death metal, but it's also very beautiful at times, like some of those like harmonic minor skills that he's using, and the the modal stuff he's doing is just insane. Hmm. And I it's something that's really never left me. So nice. I try to I consider that record one of the, the top ones for me. As cities burn, son, I loved you at your darkest. Oh
0: yeah, what a fucking dude, amazing record. Dude, I
1: it, it I have the CD in my car for like eight years now.
0: It's really <laughs> like some I, of the best vocal performances in the genre ever.
1: Yeah, that record taught me about emotion in vocal. Like, what a, what a singer, like, what a, what a band. Like, how, it, like to put that out and just when it came out, like, I think it was way before its time because mm-hmm. that, that record killed, and it always kills, like, every time I listen to it. I just, like, I, I just want to, like, I don't know. I just want to listen to it and just jam hard every time I hear it because it, it hits me, you know? It, like, I want to I help people do that like I want bands to come in and I want fans to listen to songs and I want them to have the same feeling that I had when I heard that, like that record is
0: legendary. Yeah. It's really is an insane record. Um, what, what else?
1: I could say the first Dragonforce record, mm. uh, in the same ways that the, the Necrophages stuff did. I know that they're, uh, they're big on the shredding thing. Mm. Like they like, to <laughs> I, I never, together. I never heard
0: that term before. I like that shredding. Yeah. It's
1: try to conjugate two words that are uh, <laughs> pretty funny to say but yeah. and, um a lot of people are when, when they do that they don't they don't do it right mm-hmm. <laughs> you know you gotta you you have to really pay attention to the way that the thing should be played uh, a lot of people will just you know pick every note super hard mm-hmm. uh, dit, 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 and then cut cut the transients and push them together but then like you sound like some dude that's just down picking every note, mm-hmm. like lightning fast and it's just not natural you know you got to really, if you if you have to, have time apart. I mean, obviously, you should you know try to think, in, in form of time and dynamics and what your pick would be doing as a as a if you were playing it at speed. But uh, I try I try not to do that. I I try to you know get people to play the part that they're gonna play. I mean, if it's if it's out of their realm, mm-hmm. then I'll have them work on it for a minute, and and try to get them to do it. But I mean, c- certain things here and there. For time saving purposes, you know mm. we can we can do halftime, but I, I try not to, because I'm a big fan of uh, the live performance. Mm-hmm. And I think that if you can't do it live, you shouldn't you know shouldn't be doing it at all. <laughs> so agreed, it's a big thing. But, one last yeah. one. Um, right, let's try to think of something cool. Uh,
0: I'm gonna get a lot of flack for this, mm-hmm. but. Uh, Nickelback's Dark Horse. <laughs> you, 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 this is what Joey also said, and, uh, I didn't see much much flack, but you know, uh, I, I'm sure that there was some silent flack. But go go ahead.
1: Yeah, um, I you know I hate the the attitude that people have towards Nickelback because I mean yeah it's dad rock it, you know it's blue collar rock and roll the songs are so good the mix is so good you cannot deny that like that record was put together to to hit, and it did. Like, it did its job. I I don't know, like, how many singles were off of it, but I know it was a lot. It was a lot of singles on that album. And it's, I mean, every time I hear it, my my family is huge Nickelback fans, so, like, any family event, or if we're up north or camping or anything, they're always jamming hard, so... I, uh, I was brought up around it to a certain extent, but as I got older and started diving deeper into the production of things, and I'm like, wow... Mutt Lang killing it Mm -hmm. yeah like this is crazy like uh the drums are just crazy it's like and it reminds me of like an old Def Leppard record you know like how the drums came out and they were just like so no one was ready for that sound yet it was just so perfect everything was gridded and it was like awesome the vocal harmonies were killing it that that's what does it for me with that record and the songwriting as well it's like you can't get
0: better in my opinion for a rock band nice how about three of your favorite producers
1: I like Sampura. I think he's doing things that are really cool. The fact that he builds all his gear and like is so hands-on with that is super awesome. Because I'm kind of a, a nerd, and I uh, appreciate that kind of thing. I know he has like uh, he works with certain companies and like gives feedback and like I think Hairball Audio um, he he has like helped you know work on some of their stuff, and I think it's cool that he gets so hands-on with you know companies that produce gear that we use because someone out there is doing that, you know, and providing better feedback that ultimately
0: results in better products for people like me. So I think that's cool. Yeah. He's uh, a great, great, dude. He was, uh, his episode aired this week. So, Oh wow. Yeah.
1: Yeah. He's, yeah, he's a, he's an awesome dude. He's really yeah. funny too. So I and, love uh, that guy. Very accepting. Yeah. Cool guy. Putney's killing it right now. Putney's got, I love the vibe that Putney gets his, uh, it's, it's a more natural vibe, but it's still heavy. You know, it's it's like, I think we went through a phase that was like perfection. A lot of people were striving for perfection in the uh, in the drum sounds and everything. But I don't think that that perfection is, you know, the pinnacle. I think that the, the way the drums are hitting when, you know, you're using a lot of samples and stuff are consistent. But what Will does is he makes that happen with, you know, natural drum sounds, and that's just crazy. That's awesome. I know he does a lot of time, spends a lot of time with automation. He gets in there and, like, automates all the hits and, you know, really spends the time to make the product awesome. And he's obviously killing it right now, so I definitely respect him as a producer. Look up to him. So I think that's, uh, he's definitely deserving of the the top three spot. The other guy that I would say uh, who inspires me I had it on the tip of my tongue. I just, I just forgot. <laughs> uh, let's see. A, a, an up-and-comer that I think is killing it, uh, Nolly from Periphery. Oh, and, yeah. we get good.
0: His, his, epos, his a, a, a episode airs next week.
1: Cool, cool, yeah. He's a like, genuine dude. You know, I always kind of look, looked up to him because of the Periphery aspect of everything, and I've been following him for a while. Um, even when he was with Red Seasfire, his production has just been getting better and better um, he, he really gets in there and, you know, pays attention to the drum sounds and like pays attention to the tuning and gets like scientific with it and tries to break down, okay, um, I have tension on this head. What's the, what, how do we get the resonant head to sound, you know, the best and he'll, he'll have systems and he shares a lot of that information. There's a forum that a lot of us are a part of and we try to share as much as we can, you know, talk amongst each other, but, uh, yeah, and he's always giving away really good stuff. So I think that's a I, that's a really good quality that I appreciate. In him. Nice.
0: And so, what's your favorite record of recent times, and what inspires you about it?
1: I'm in, I'm into that New Wage War record. I think it's really cool. Uh, I think Wade killed it on that. I'm not sure if uh, McKinnon was on or not for co-production or not, but whoever the team was that made that record really slayed. Because that I, I mean, it's it's a fresh sound. It's got a it's got a really tight low end. I really love the sound of that record. Really put a good impression on me for the band when I first heard it. And I know they're a new band, but uh, they're killing it.
0: Nice. Uh, so our last question is: What have you been uh, working on lately?
1: In the past six months, I mean, I finished the second Polyphia full length. I think I think that's due out in March. I finished the era full length, and that's I think a single is actually dropping today. So. And I just finished *Fit for a King*, and tomorrow I start kind of a secret project for a uh, Sumerian. A um, couple, couple different people from different bands that are Sumerian artists are doing a collab, and we have them in here for the next like twelve days or so. And then other than that, I've been uh, working and designing this guitar that I'm uh, trying to. Bring to market soon. It's a uh, it's kind of a, a guitar designed for studio guys and like the dream guitar for anybody who records music and is frustrated with the way that guitars are nowadays.
0: Uh, I-, I can't wait to see this.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's uh it's kind of cool. It's like um if you were to think of what the 500 series format did for outboard gear, uh, th- that's kind of what I'm trying to do for guitars in general. It's it's a it's a modular design so. Pretty much everything and every, anything that you can think of that is a part on the guitar can be changed and swapped pretty quickly. Hmm. Yeah. So, like, very cool. Pickup, bridge, neck, string count, uh, scale, all color, all that stuff you can change. And uh, I'm going to make it pretty easy to integrate other other things like you know compressors inside of there, um, EQ stacks inside of your guitar itself, wirelesses. Uh, I'm going to try to make that format available so people make it it's just easier on people to, you know, change the stuff on their guitar because when you want a different vocal sound, you reach, I mean, you reach for an EVE, you reach for an API, a millennia, mm. whatever you got on hand. But I think guitarists are kind of stuck with how the holes are drilled in it. You know, when you have a bridge and you're like, man, I wish I could do that flutter thing that I saw Guy X do on YouTube and, With mine, you'll be able to, you know, make that happen within a few minutes or so. A couple screws and you're done, pretty much.
0: If you enjoyed this episode, please remember the golden rule of the internet. That if you enjoy something you got for free, please tweet, Facebook share, or tell your friends about it in whatever way you like to do that. Please check out Noise Creators' website and take a look around. We have tons of interviews, discographies, Spotify playlists from all the best producers out there on our service. If you are unsure about who your band should work with, we can help you get the best producer fit for your record. To keep up with us, follow at Noise Creators on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud, Tumblr, or Facebook. This podcast can also be found wherever podcasts are found, including iTunes and Stitcher. I'm your host, Jesse Cannon. I can be found on Twitter at Jesse Cannon or at jessicannon.com. Again, please help spread the word about this podcast and what Noise Creators does so we can keep this going.